0: 14. M.S. The Glittering Coronet of Morn. I.I. The Phases of Venus. But the changes in the aspect of Venus due to her varying positions in her orbit are not confined to those which cause her to oscillate with a pendulum movement eastward and westward from the Sun. The discovery that she undergoes phases exactly like those of the Moon, followed that of the existence of Jupiter's satellites as the second great result achieved by the use of the telescope in the hands of Galileo the fact that the planets were intrinsically dark bodies revolving round the Sunday and reflecting its light, as the An Copernicus had maintained, thus received a further ocular demonstration. The Florentine astronomer describes in a letter to a friend how the planet, after emerging from superior conjunction as a morning star, gradually loses her rotundity on the side remote from the luminary, changing first to a half-sphere and then to a waning crescent, until after passing through the stage of absolute extinction when intervening between us and the Sunday she appears as a morning star, and undergoes the same series of transformations in inverse order. the revelation was indeed so novel and unexpected, that when the slight deformation of the planet’s shape was first detected by him, he did not venture to announce it in plain terms but veiled it, according to the prevailing fashion of the time. under a Latin his celebrated sentence inatura jam thrust those incomplete observations are as yet read by me in vain, forms, by transposing the letters, the more definite statement, Cynthia Figures in relator Mater Amarum, the mother of the loves imitates the aspects of Diana, that is to say, Venus buys with the phases of the moon, the discovery was an important one from its bearing on popular superstition ascribing to the planet's special influences on human affairs, for since they were thus shown to transmit to us only borrowed light, Belief in their beneficent or malefic powers over man's destinies received a rude shock. Galileo's announcement, published in September, 1610, when only a slight flattening of the planet's disk was visible, received absolute confirmation in the ensuing months, as she completed her full half-circle of change on February 24th of the following year, and consequently exhibited herself to him in all her varying aspects. It was the first time they had been looked upon by a human eye since its unaided powers do not enable it to discern them. Although one exception to this rule is said to have existed, this was the case of the Swiss mathematician Gauss, who, when a child, on being shown the crescent star through the telescope, exclaimed to his mother that it was turned wrong, the inference being that he recognized the reversal of the image in the field of the glass. If it were indeed so, he deserves to rank with the Siberian savage, who described the eclipses, or Jupiter's satellites, or the shoemaker of Breslau, who could see and declare the positions of those minute orbs. The phases exhibited to us by Venus are due to her moving in an orbit within that of the earth, that one side of which she is between us and the sun while at the other this position is exactly reversed. We may compare her to a performer in a great celestial circus, lit by a central chandelier, and ourselves to spectators in an external ring, from which we see her at one time facing us with the light full on her at the opposite point in complete shadow, and at the intermediate ones in varying degrees of illumination according to our changing views of her. The same illustration may serve to show why Venus is brightest, not when full, since she is then beyond the sun day and at the farthest possible point from us, but when she approaches us at inferior conjunction, more nearly by over 130 million miles, and still shows us a crescent of her illuminated surface. Before passing into the last phase of total obscuration, when actually nearest to us she is absolutely invisible, being then, like the new moon, between us and the sun, her varying degrees of brilliancy, even when in the same phase, are thus accounted for by her alternate retreat from and advance towards us as she circles round the sun day completing, as she does, her revolution in about seven months and a half, she would of course go through the whole series of her metamorphoses in that time were the earth, from which we observe them, a fixed point, their protraction instead, over a term of 584 days, or more than 19 months, is due to the simultaneous motion of the earth in the same direction, over her larger orbit in a longer period, causing the same relative position of the sister planet to recur only as often as she overtakes her in her career, thus the hour and minute hands of a watch, moving at different rates of speed after meeting on the dial plate at 12 o'clock will not again come together until five minutes past one, when the swifter pace of the two will have completed a revolution and a twelfth. But were we to retard the motion of the latter, reducing it to only twice that of its companion, they would always meet at the figure twelve, as it would exactly complete two circuits while the hour hand was performing one. Venus thus overtakes and passes the earth once in 584 days, or nearly two and a half of her own years constituting what is called her synodic period of apparent revolution as seen from this globe, she thus presents to us all the phases undergone by our own satellite during a lunar month, passing from new to full, and vice versa, through the various intervening gradations of form, the phases of Venus are amongst the most beautiful subjects for observation in a moderate telescope, as her silver bow, gradually brightening in the evening dusk, or fading in the dawn, on a bed of daffodil sky, island after the two greater luminaries that rule the day and night, the most brilliant object in the heavens, Iii, the silver crown, the parallel between Venus and that orb maiden with fire laden, whom mortals call the moon, is carried a stage further. Most of us are familiar with the spectacle in which the ancient Egyptians saw symbolized Horus on the lap of Isis, but which we more prosaically term, the old moon in the new moon's arms. The strongly illuminated half-circle next the Sun is then seen embracing with its horns a dusky sphere, contrasting with it as tarnished silver does with the newly burnished metal. The same phenomenon is occasionally, though very rarely, exhibited by Venus, while close to the Sun at inferior injunction. When the shadowy form of the full orb is seen to shine inly within her crescent with what is termed, the ashen light. More wonderful still, this glimmering sphere is then crowned, as with a silver halo by a thin luminous arch, forming a secondary sickle facing the one nearest the Sunday and doubtless due to the refraction of his rays round the globe of the planet, through the upper regions of her twilight atmosphere. The spectacle was first observed by the Jesuit Ricciolo, an opponent of the Copernican theory. On January 9, 1643, he describes the planet as ruddy near the Sunday yellowish in the middle, and of greenish-blue on the side remote from the sun. While he also noted the bow of light limiting the dark hemisphere, scarcely daring to trust his own eyesight, he ascribed these appearances, although he recorded them, to illusory reflection in the telescope, they were again seen, however, by Durham about 1715, and six years later by Kirch, in Berlin, who has the following entry in his diary for Saturday, June 29, 1721, I found Venus in a region where the sky was not very clear. The planet was narrow, and I seemed to see its dark side, though this is almost incredible. The diameter of Venus was 65, and its sickle seemed to tremble in the atmospheric vapors. Again, on March 8, 1726, he records a similar observation. We observed Venus with the 26-foot telescope. I perceived her dark side, and its edge seemed to describe a smaller circle than that of the light side, as is the case of the Moon. This effect is due to irradiation, that is to say, to the glare from a bright surface, giving a deceptive enlargement to its apparent area. He again saw the dark side of the planet in October, 1759, as did Harding at Goetemgen, with Herschel's 10-foot reflector. On January 24, 1806, this latter observer saw it on this occasion stand out against the background of the sky as of a pale ashen green, while on February 28 following, it seemed to him of a pale reddish-gray, like the color of the eclipsed moon, that the latter body should send to us from her nocturnal shadows sufficient light to be visible is easily explicable, since she is then flooded with earth light reflected on her from a surface thirteen and one-half times greater than her own, and probably casting on her an illumination transcending our full moonlight in the same proportion, but the secondary light of Venus admits of no such explanation, since earth light on her surface, Diminished by one twelve thousandth part compared to a lot it is on that of the moon, would be quite insufficient to render her visible to our eyes. The phenomenon was therefore adduced as an argument for the habitability of the planets by Grothweisen of the Munich Observatory, who, writing early in the century, suggested that the ashen light of Venus might be due to general illuminations in celebration by her inhabitants of some periodically recurring festivity. The materials for a flare up on so grand a scale would he thought, exist in abundance, as he conjectured the vegetation of our planetary neighbor to be more luxuriant than that of our Brazilian forests, the phosphorescence of the Aphroditean oceans, warm and teeming with life, as they are held to be by Zollner, was advanced as an explanatory hypothesis, with scarcely more plausibility, by Professor Suffrick. While others have resorted to the supposition of atmospheric or electrical luminosity producing on a large scale some such display as that of the aurora borealis, Professor Vogel, of Berlin, who himself saw part of the night side of Venus, in its semi-obscurity in November, 1871, ascribed its visibility to a twilight effect caused by a very extensive atmosphere, the light thus transmitted to us by aerial diffusion and giving the ashen light, is reflected sunlight while that sent by the luminous arc on its edge is direct sunlight, refracted, or bent round to us. From behind the planet, the silver selvage of the dawn edging the dark limb may consequently be the brightest part of the broken nimbus that then seems to surround her. A similar appearance is observed during transits of Venus, when she passes directly between us and the actual solar disk. A silver thread is then seen encircling that side of the planet which has not yet entered on the face of the sun or a shadowy nebulous ring. As it was described by Mr. McDonnell at Eden, surrounds the whole planetary disk when two-thirds of it has passed the solar edge. As it moves off it, the same aureole again becomes visible, testifying to the existence of an atmosphere of considerable extent exterior to the sharply outlined surface ordinarily visible. The shimmering haze of reflected sunlight which perpetually enfolds her is only made apparent to us under exceptional circumstances which cut off some portion of her more immediate light. Just as we see the motes in the air illuminated by a candle if we hide the actual flame from our eyes, the perennial twilight which seems to reign over the nocturnal hemisphere of Venus may compensate, perhaps, for the want of a satellite to modify its darkness, the great prolongation at other times of the horns of her crescent, so as to embrace almost her entire circumference with a tenuous ring of light, is doubtless due to the same cause, as their visibility should otherwise be limited to a half segment of a circle. The regions thus shining to us are obviously those on which the Sun has not yet set, his appearance above the horizon being prolonged, as in our own case, by refraction, though to a much larger extent, the magnitude of the Sun's disk as seen from Venus, a third larger than it appears to us, is also adducted by Mr. Proctor in his posthumous work, The Old and the New Astronomy, edited and completed by Mr. A.C. Rainyard as an element in extending the illumination of Venus to more than a hemisphere of her surface, as his diameter there is 4414 degrees ohm of more than 22 degrees wide outside the sunward hemisphere as he thinks illuminated by direct though partial sunlight, the orb being throughout this tract still partially above the horizon, the group of bodies which cluster around our sun forms a little island, so to speak, in the extent of infinite space. We may illustrate this by a map in which we shall endeavor to show the stars placed at their proper relative distances. We first open the compasses one inch, and thus draw a little circle to represent the path of the Earth. We are not going to put in all the planets. We take Neptune, the outermost, at once. To draw its path I open the compasses to 30 inches, and draw a circle with that radius, that will do for our solar system. Though the comets no doubt will roam beyond these limits. To complete our map we ought of course to put in some stars. There are a hundred million to choose from. And we shall begin with the brightest. It is often called the dog star. But astronomers know it better as Sirius. Let us see where it is to be placed on our map. Sirius is beyond Neptune. So it must be outside somewhere. Indeed. It is a good deal further off than Neptune. So I try at the edge of the drawing board. I have got a method of making a little calculation that I do not intend to trouble you with but I can assure you that the results it leads me to are quite correct, they show me that this board is not big enough, but could a board which was big enough fit into this lecture theatre? Here, again, I make my little calculations, and I find that there would not be room for a board sufficiently great, in fact, if I put the sun here at one end, with its planets around it, Sirius would be too near on the same scale if it were at the further corner, the board would have to go out through the wall of the theatre, out through London, Indeed, big as London Island it would not be large enough to contain the drawing board that I should require. It would have to stretch about twenty miles from where we are now assembled. We may therefore dismiss any hope of making a practical map of our system on the scale if Sirius is to have its proper place. Let us, then, take some other star. We shall naturally try with the nearest of all. It is one that we do not know in this part of the world, but those that live in the southern hemisphere are well acquainted with it. The name of the star is Alpha Centauri. Even for the star we should require a drawing three or four miles long if the distance from the earth to the sun is to be taken as one inch. You see what an isolated position our sun and his planets occupy. The members of the family are all close together. And the nearest neighbors are situated at enormous distances. There is a good reason for this separation. The stars are very pretty and perfectly harmless to us where they are at present situated. They might be very troublesome neighbors if they were very much closer to our system. It is therefore well they are so far off, they would be constantly making disturbances in the sun's family if they were near at hand. Sometimes they would be dragging us into unpleasantly great heat by bringing us too close to the sun day or producing a coolness by pulling us away from the sun day which would be quite as disagreeable. The stars are suns. We are about to discuss one of the grandest truths in the whole of nature. We have had occasion to see that the sun of ours is a magnificent globe immensely larger than the greatest of his planets, while the greatest of these planets is immensely larger than the surf, but now we are to learn that our sun island indeed, only a star not nearly so bright as many of those which shine over our heads every night, we are comparatively close to the sun day so that we are able to enjoy his beautiful light and cheering heat. Each of those other myriads of stars is a Sunday and the splendor of those distant suns is often far greater than that of our own. We are, however, so enormously far from them that they appear dwindled down to insignificance. To judge impartially between our sun or star and such a sun or star as Sirius we should stand halfway between the two, it is impossible to make a fair estimate when we find ourselves situated close to a one star and a million times as far from the other. After allowances made for the imperfections of our point of view, we are enabled to realize the majestic truth that the sun is no more than a star, and that the other stars are no less than suns. This gives us an imposing idea of the extent and magnificence of the universe in which we are situated. Look lip at the sky at night you will see a host of stars, try to think that every one of them is itself a sun. It may probably be that those suns have planets circling around them but it is hopeless for us to expect to see such planets. Were you standing on one of those stars and looking towards our system, you would not perceive the sun to be the brilliant and gorgeous object that we know so well. If you could see him at all, he would nearly seem like a star, not nearly as bright as many of those you can see at night. Even if you had the biggest of telescopes to aid your vision, you could never discern from one of these bodies the planets which surround the sun and no astronomer in the stars could see Jupiter even if his sight were a thousand times as powerful as any sight or telescope that we know, so minute an object as our Earth would, of course, be still more hopelessly beyond the possibility of vision, the number of the stars, to count the stars involves a task which lies beyond the power of man to accomplish, even without the aid of any telescope, we can see a great multitude of stars from this part of the world, there are also many constellations in the southern hemisphere which never appear above our horizon, If However, we were to go to the equator, then, by waiting there for a twelve month, all the stars in the heavens would have been successively exposed to view. An astronomer, who old with the patience to count them, enumerated about six thousand, this is the naked eye estimate of the star population of the heavens, but if instead of relying on an aided vision, you get the assistance of a little telescope, you will be astounded at the enormous multitude of stars which are disclosed. An ordinary opera glass or binocular is a very full instrument for looking at the stars in the heavens. If you employ an instrument of this sort, you will be amazed to find that the heavens team with additional hosts of stars that your urinated vision would never have given you knowledge of. any part of the sky may be observed, but, just to give an illustration, I shall take one special region, namely, that of the great bear figure one. The seven well-known stars are here shown, four of which form a sort of oblong while the other three represent the tail. I would like you to make this little experiment. On a fine clear night, count how many stars there are within this oblong, they are all very faint, but you will be able to see a few. and, with good sight, and on a clear night, you may see perhaps 10. Next take your opera glass and sweep it over the same region, if you will carefully count the stars it shows, you will find fully 200, so that the opera glass has, in this part of the sky, Revealed nearly 20 times as many stars as could be seen without its aid. As 6,000 stars can be seen by the eye all over the heavens, we may fairly expect that 20 times that number that is to say, 120,000 stars could be shown by the opera glass over the entire sky. Let us go a step further, and employ a telescope, the object glass of which is 3 inches across. This is a full telescope to have, and, if a good one, will show multitudes of pleasing objects. Though an astronomer would not consider it very powerful, an instrument like this, small enough to be carried in the hand, has been applied to the task of enumerating the stars in the northern half of the sky, and 320,000 stars were counted. Indeed, the actual number that might have been seen with it is considerably greater, for when the astronomer Archlander made this memorable investigation he was unable to reckon many of the stars in localities where they lay very close together. This grand count only extended to half the sky, and, assuming that the other half is as richly inlaid with stars, we see that a little telescope like that we have supposed will, when swept over the heavens, reveal a number of stars which exceeds that of the population of any city in England except London. It exhibits more than 100 times as many stars as our eyes could possibly reveal. Still, we are only at the beginning of the count, the very great telescopes add largely to the number. There are multitudes of stars which in small instruments we cannot see, but which are distinctly visible from our great observatories. That telescope would be still but a comparatively small one which would show as many stars in the sky as there are people living in the mighty city of London, and with the greatest instruments. The tale of stars has risen to a number far greater than that of the entire population of Great Britain, in addition to those stars which the largest telescopes show us. There are myriads which make their presence evident in a wholly different way. It is only in quite recent times that an attempt has been made to develop fully the powers of photography in representing the celestial objects. On a photographic plate which has been exposed to the sky in a great telescope the stars are recorded by thousands. Many of these may, of course, be observed with a good telescope. But there are not a few others which no one ever saw in a telescope, which apparently no one ever could see though the photograph is able to show them. We do not, however, employ a camera like that which the photographer uses who is going to take your portrait. The astronomer's plate is put into his telescope, and then the telescope is turned towards the sky. On that plate the stars produce their images, each by its own light. Some of these images are excessively faint, but we give a very long exposure of an hour or two hours. Sometimes as much as four hours exposure is given to a plate so sensitive that a mere fraction of a second would sufficiently expose it during the ordinary practice of taking a photograph in daylight. We thus afford sufficient time to enable the fainter objects to indicate their presence upon the sensitive film. Even with an exposure of a single hour a picture exhibiting 16,000 stars has been taken by Mr. Isaac Roberts of Liverpool. Yet the portion of the sky which it represents is only one ten-thousandth part of the entire heavens. It should be added that the region which Mr. Roberts has photographed is furnished with stars in rather exceptional profusion. Here, at last, we had obtained some conception of the sublime scale on which the stellar universe is constructed. Yet even these plates cannot represent all the stars that the heavens contain. We had every reason for knowing that with larger telescopes, with more sensitive plates, with more prolonged exposures, ever fresh myriads of stars will be brought within our view. You must remember that every one of these stars is truly a Sunday lamp, as it were, which doubtless gives light to other objects in its neighborhood as our sun sheds light upon the surf and the other planets. In fact, to realize the glories of the heavens you should try to think that the brilliant points you see are merely the luminous points of the otherwise invisible universe. Standing one fine night on the deck of a cuniter we pass eight in open ocean another great Atlantic steamer. The vessel was near enough for us to see not only the light from the masthead but also the little beams from the several cabin ports, and we could see nothing of the ship herself. Her very existence was only known to us by the twinkle of these lights. Doubtless her passengers could see, and did see, the similar lights from our own vessel, and they probably drew the correct inference that these lights indicated a great ship. Consider the multiplicity of beings and objects in a ship, the captain and the crew, the passengers, The cabins, the engines, the boats, the rigging, and the stores. Think of all the varied interests there collected and then reflect that out on the ocean, that night, the sole indication of the existence of this elaborate structure was given by the few beams of light that happened to irradiate from it. Now raise your eyes to the stars, there are the twinkling lights. We cannot see what those lights illuminate. We can only conjecture what a told wealth of non-luminous bodies may also lie in their vicinity, we may, however, feel certain that just as the few gleaming lights from a ship are utterly inadequate to give a notion of the nature and the contents of an Atlantic steamer, so are the twinkling stars utterly inadequate to give even the faintest conception of the extent and the interest of the universe. We merely see self-luminous bodies, but of the multitudes of objects and the elaborate systems of which these bodies are only the conspicuous points we see nothing and we know very little. We are, however, entitled to infer from an examination of our own star the Sun and of the beautiful system by which it is surrounded, that these other suns may be also splendidly attended. This is quite as reasonable a supposition as that a set of lights seen at night on the Atlantic Ocean indicates the existence of a fine ship, the clusters of stars. On a clear night you can often see, stretching across the sky, a track of faint light, which is known to astronomers as the Milky Way. It extends below the horizon and then round the earth to form a girdle about the heavens. When we examine the Milky Way with a telescope we find, to our amazement, that it consists of myriads of stars, so small and so faint that we are not able to distinguish them individually, we merely see the glow produced from their collective rays, remembering that our sun is a star, and that the Milky Way surrounds us. It would almost seem as if our sun were but one of the host of stars which form this cluster. There are also other clusters of stars, some of which are exquisitely beautiful telescopic spectacles. I may mention a celebrated pair of these objects which lies in the constellation of Perseus. The sight of them in a great telescope is so imposing that no one who was fit to look through a telescope could resist a shout of wonder and admiration when first they burst on his view. But there are other clusters. Here is a picture of one which is known as the globular cluster in the centaur, figure 2. It consists of a ball of stars. So far off that, however large these several suns may actually be. They have dwindled down to extremely small points of light. A homely illustration may serve to show the appearance which a globular cluster presents in a good telescope. I take a pepper caster, and on a sheet of white paper I begin to shake out the pepper until there is a little heap at the center and other grains are scattered loosely about. Imagine that every one of those grains of pepper was to be transformed into a tiny electric light and then you have some idea of what a cluster of stars would look like when viewed through a telescope of sufficient power. There are multitudes of such groups scattered through the depths of space. They require our biggest telescopes to show them adequately. We have seen that our sun is a star, being only one of a magnificent cluster that forms the Milky Way. We have also seen that there are other groups scattered through the length and depth of space. It is thus we obtain a notion of the rank which our Earth holds in the scheme of things celestial. The rank of the Earth as a globe in space, let me give an illustration with the view of explaining more fully the nature of the relation which the earth bears to the other globes which abound through space, and you must allow me to draw a little upon my imagination, I shall suppose that the males of our country extend not only over this globe, but that they also communicate with other worlds, that postal arrangements exist between Mars and the Earth, between the Sun and Orion in fact, everywhere throughout the whole extent of the universe. We shall consider how our letters are to be addressed. Let us take the case of Mr. John Smith, merchant, who lives at 1001, Piccadilly, and let us suppose that Mr. John Smith's business transactions are of such an extensive nature that they reach not only all over this globe, but away throughout space. I shall suppose that the firm has a correspondent residing let us say in the constellation of the Great Bear, and when this man of business wants to write to Mr. Smith from these remote regions, what address must be put upon the letter, so that the Postmaster General of the Universe shall make no mistake about its delivery? He will write as follows, Mr. John Smith, 1001 Piccadilly, London, England, Europe, Earth, near the Sunday Milky Way, the Universe. Let us now see what the several lines of this address mean. Of course we put down the name of Mr. John Smith in the first line, and then we will add, 1001 Piccadilly, for the second but as the people in the Great Bear are not likely to know where Piccadilly Island we shall add, London, underneath, as even London itself cannot be well known everywhere, it is better to write, England, this would surely find Mr John Smith from any post office on this globe, from other globes, however, the supreme importance of England may not be so immediately recognized, and therefore it is as well to add another line, Europe, this ought to be sufficient, I think, For any post office in the solar system, Europe is big enough to be visible from Mars or Venus, and should be known to the post office people there, just as we know and have names for the continents on Mars. But further away there might be a little difficulty, from Uranus and Neptune the different regions on our Earth can never have been distinguished, and therefore we must add another line to indicate the particular globe of the solar system which contains Europe. Mark Twain tells us that there was always one thing in astronomy which specially puzzled him, and that was to know how we found out the names of the stars. We are, of course, in hopeless ignorance.